This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. For the first time, the high-dose flu vaccine for people 65 and over will be offered this fall in Ontario pharmacies in addition to doctor's offices. Libby Snymer reported this good news on Wednesday in a Fight Back exclusive. During the last flu season, the high-dose vaccine was only available in doctors' offices. But this year, with the pandemic, it's not a practical plan since most clinics are operating virtually. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss the exciting development, family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel and Alan Malik, Executive Vice President and Chief Pharmacy Officer at the Ontario Pharmacists Association. This is uh, very good news, not not simply uh, for pharmacists, but more importantly for uh, seniors right across the province. Okay, so uh, how is it going to work? First of all, when when should we expect that the high dose will get to pharmacies? We're still working on the details of uh, all the logistics, the operational matters with public health and with um, with the ministry. Uh, but what we are being told is that in early October. Flu vaccines should start to arrive in pharmacies. This is normal. This is uh, usually the, the typical time when pharmacies will receive their allocation of flu vaccines. And now, historically, that's been the regular. Uh, we are being told that uh, the high-dose flu vaccine will accompany the regular vaccines at the same time. And as with every flu season, the intent is for individuals who are at high risk to get that vaccination first. Um, And so uh, we anticipate that seniors will be uh, looking to their pharmacists as well as to their their doctors when doctors' offices are are opening or if they are open now. They'll be looking to get those vaccinations as Uh, soon as possible. Dr. Gorfinkel, what's the situation in your office? I'm concerned about the barriers that family doctors' offices present to getting vaccines now that we're in the COVID-19 era. It's changed tremendously around here. Just in order to get an in-person appointment, they, you know, patients have to do the script. Have you been out of the country? Do you have any signs or symptoms? And we go through every single one of them. So that represents a barrier. And then when they do come in, we, we of course, do careful social distancing. But I want you to contrast that for just a minute to how it used to be. I used to have an open-door policy so as not to have such barriers. And now there are serious barriers. So I, I'm absolutely thrilled that the pharmacists can give the high-dose influenza vaccine. I think it's a hugely progressive move, and I'm excited about it, but wonder, will we have enough to go around for everyone? That's the question. Uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, it sounds like you would like to be able to offer it, but I would imagine that most doctors who are now operating mostly virtually, they don't really want people coming in just to get a flu shot. Well, I can't really speak for most doctors, but there are a number of doctors who are working only virtually because it's not easy. We have to do serious cleaning between patients. We have to ensure the rooms are clean. Um, 
so yeah, there, it, it does represent a serious barrier. But understand, I think the main message for seniors is that high dose or not, the high dose is what's recommended by the National Advisory on Canadian Immunizations for individuals who are over the age of 65. They don't actually differentiate. In times of a pandemic, and especially if it's very, you know, it's not widely available, we would want to target those seniors who are not only over 65, but those with chronic conditions. And in fact, that's what Toronto Public Health is planning on doing. Initially, doctor's offices are not going to have them in, in early October. We're not going to get them at, at best until mid-October or even late October, depending on how soon we can get our orders in. But the take-home message is the government is using those high-dose vaccines to prioritize those individuals who are living in long-term care and who are at highest risk, and also those who are in hospital. What would you like to leave us with, Iris? Get the flu shot early. Get it at the first opportunity. And don't be too hung up on whether or not it's high dose. If you can get the high dose, and you're especially if you're over 80 with chronic conditions, and I'm going to say 80 because that's when, you know, that's where the deaths from COVID-19 are taking place. Okay, Alan. Get your flu shot. Call in advance if, if that helps matters. Uh, speak with your pharmacist about, uh, about this to get more, uh, more answers to your questions. But uh, regardless, get vaccinated. Quick shout out to my friends at PharmaSave for undertaking that survey. Uh, great, great data coming out of that. Alan Malik, Executive VP and Chief Pharmacy Officer at the Ontario Pharmacists Association and family physician, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned this past week, Canada's biggest for-profit retirement home operator, Chartwell Retirement Residences, wants to drop the restriction that calls for a 14-day quarantine for new residents. This request quickly prompted criticism that Chartwell is only considering the company's profits and not the safety of residents. Fight Back got to the bottom of the issue when Libby spoke on Thursday with Dr. Tamara Daly, director of York University Center for Aging Research and Education, Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP, and Sharon Rinali, spokesperson for Chartwell Retirement Residences. Libby, I think the most important thing to say first and foremost is we have not called on any body of government to do this. We've actually said in an investor call that the 14-day isolation period can be a deterrent to seniors who have already been isolated through the pandemic to move in and that there are examples across Canada of enhanced precautions that have replaced the full isolation in suites. So, uh, I, I have to say, I think the government's done an excellent job in every province we operate on working with um, retirement home operators and long-term care operators as well, because we're on both sides, to keep people safe. And we, we, we respect that. But it is a difficult thing to be placed in your room for 14 days straight. Do you think that this is the thing that is stopping people from moving into a retirement residence? So more than 25% of seniors live alone. I would say that experience during COVID was exceptionally isolating already. If you did not have family nearby, if you did not know how to order your groceries, if you had care needs, even if you gave up your daily, uh, you know, drop by Tim Hortons or mall walk, et cetera, all the things that normalize, getting your hair done, regular activities. People who had stayed in their home for that time, whose needs may have um, accelerated during that time, and are now exploring retirement living, 
at times are finding it a deterrent and becoming what we call hesitant. They're unsure. The the representation of retirement homes versus long-term care also makes them hesitant. Retirement homes are different, and so were their outcomes during the pandemic. And we're trying to help families understand that we've remained a safe place, that we're a supportive place, and how we can help them should they require our services uh, on that transition. Uh, Bill, is it a good idea to ease those restrictions? Well, CARP wants to do everything uh, that uh, wants everything done that can be to protect seniors uh, uh, wherever they are. But uh, as Sharon said, uh, each retirement home is different. Uh, Retirement homes are not long-term care homes. Uh, The regulations are and and should be different. So what we're concerned about is the regulations, cookie-cutter approach that seems to treat all facilities in the same way. And it's time that we started looking at uh, what facilities need what kind of different uh, uh, controls and uh, the seniors, the residents, have to be brought into this discussion. These decisions being made for them, but not with them, are just aren't acceptable anymore. Dr. Daly, we know that retirement residences and long-term care homes are different, and the populations are different, but that gap has closed because there are long waiting lists for long-term care, and, and as it turns out, there are now people in retirement residences who need more care than that and who are older and sicker. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely correct. And that is one of the challenges with thinking about retirement residences and long-term care as completely different. We are talking about communal living arrangements and communal activities. And we do know that in communal settings, the risk of exposure and spread is far greater. And we're also talking about a population um, that move into retirement residences that have uh, different degrees of vulnerability. Uh, so I think we need to consider those things when we think about what sort of policies we want to put in place. We have to be vigilant. We have to protect our, our seniors. We have to protect uh, maintain these protocols in place. We have to listen to public health officials. But I also think to a point that um, Dr. Daly just said a minute ago, retirement homes are, you know, have been um, integrated even more into the continuum of care in the last few years. And that's an important setting to help uh, the community. And we have to continue to be part of the continuum of care. And that's why we're, we're highly compliant. We're a regulated sector and highly compliant. I would leave your listeners with that information. Sharon Rinali with Chartwell Retirement Residences, Dr. Tamara Daly, Director of York University Center for Aging Research and Education, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. We learned this past week another ethics conflict has hit Justin Trudeau's circle. The Prime Minister's former ambassador to the U.S., David McNaughton, was found to have broken Canada's conflict of interest law by the Federal Ethics Commissioner. Mario Dion details that McNaughton communicated with nine ministers and political staff this past spring after becoming president of Palantir Technologies. 
Dion goes on to say McNaughton's offered to the Trudeau Liberals of pro bono assistance during the pandemic broke Section 33 of the Conflict of Interest Act, which bars former public office holders from acting in such a manner as to take improper advantage of their previous position. Justin Trudeau himself has broken Canada's conflict of interest law twice as prime minister and is currently being investigated by the ethics commissioner over the We Charity controversy. Joining Libby Snymer on Thursday to discuss the latest controversy, the opposition ethics critics, the New Democrats' Charlie Angus and the Conservatives' Michael Barrett. I called for this investigation because I was interested in Palantir. Uh, For your listeners, if they don't know about Palantir, they should know. This is a really controversial company uh, tied to data surveillance in the United States, uh, a very, I think, uber-dark billionaire extremist, Peter Thiel, who runs it. And I was wondering, when is this company going to start trying to peddle their wares in Canada? And lo and behold, they get a top liberal operator, former ambassador, uh, David McNaughton, and right away thought, okay, here we go again. And boy, oh boy, this guy gets steps down. He was appointed ambassador after helping run Justin Trudeau's leadership, uh, election campaign in 2015. He gets a plum patronage post, steps down from that, and goes to work for Palantir. And in no time, he's got backroom access to everybody's office, including the deputy prime minister. This is not how government is supposed to work. Michael Barrett? Well, well uh, Charlie's absolutely right. And um, as a result of, of his urging uh, to the ethics commissioner, we have this this finding uh, against um, the former ambassador, this hand-picked Trudeau liberal, who demonstrates yet again that these liberals uh, don't think that the rules apply to them. And uh, I, I I think I read a quote from uh, you yesterday, Charlie, that said, uh, wondering if if any of the liberals had read the rules. And uh, and and I don't and I and I genuinely don't think they have. We have day after day. Uh, week after week, uh, examples of the Liberals um, not following the rules and, and further breaking the law. And whether it was uh, whether it was insider access um, with the Prime Minister's trip to Billionaire Island, whether it was the Prime Minister putting his friends first at SNC-Lavalin and interfering in uh, the criminal prosecution there, um, or we see now with the Wee scandal, a very well-documented Wee scandal cost the Prime Minister to shut down Parliament, to pro, to uh, to uh, prorogue uh, not the House, but to prorogue uh, the Ethics Committee and the Finance Committee, to shut down these inquiries into corruption in government, and we have a finding last week that the uh, former Finance Minister broke elections laws, and we have uh, two former Liberals up on criminal charges, yep. and now this and now this week. Um, here it is, uh, the former ambassador, Trudeau's um, uh, an, an insider uh, who, you know, used his, used his position to get um, illegal and inappropriate access to the top decision makers in the halls of power. Are we close to the tipping point where people say enough's enough or is this just are, are we getting used to this? I think that people are absolutely getting tired of it, but. Um, whether that's a justification for an election at this point, I, I think that, frankly, I think that's what Justin Trudeau wants. He prorogued Parliament to shut down the Ethics Committee. He pro- Look, he, he prorogued Charlie Angus and, and Pierre Polyev. That's what, you know, he, he wanted parliamentarians who were asking tough questions to stop 
asking tough questions. And uh, that's what will happen if we if we have an election uh, and without and, and the opposition parties ran out and said, we're, we're going to vote against the throne speech without having even seen what's in it. Uh, we're doing a disservice to Canadians. But but also, if we if we just accept the premise that uh that because these, we, we think that they've done it again, we think that they've broken the, the law again, that, that that's enough. I, I want these committee hearings to continue. I want Canadians to get the truth. I want to hear full testimony and see unredacted documents and provide that information for Canadians. We need people to be able to make an informed decision and to get the full picture of what these Liberals are all about and that, uh, and that if they come out uh, whenever that next election is and, and, and promise sunny ways again, that uh, Canadians know that that's demonstrably not what this government is about. It's, it's about putting their friends first and making Canadians pick up the check. Libby's conversation on Thursday with NDP ethics critic Charlie Angus and conservative ethics critic Michael Barrett. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Back in June, Ontario optometrists initiated a campaign calling on the Doug Ford government to, quote, end the 30-year neglect in funding for eye care. Now, optometrists are asking for support from the province to either cover the true cost of eye exams or give optometrists more flexibility in their billings. Dr. Sheldon Saliba is president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. He joined Libby on Thursday. I think things are fairly consistent. They remain strained from a perspective of patients having full access to us. As long as we're in the pandemic, we're, we're kind of structured to only have the ability to see 40 to 50 percent of the of the patients that we normally did that's definitely having an effect for patients to receive care what about the ability of optometrists to keep the doors open i mean you've got you can see fewer patients and presumably maybe you have to hire more people to do the special cleaning in between patients uh, and you've got ppe and you still have rent and all of those things right Totally. Yeah, like it's, um, I don't know, it's a precarious situation. We have to be very careful on the types of patients that we're seeing. We've discussed this issue on your show before, but the majority of our practices, uh, 70% of the patients that we see are insured through OHIP, and there have been decades of funding neglect around those services. That means that Optometrists are paying more than half of the cost to see an OHIP insured service. So in an environment where our volume is severely restricted, which is mechanism, we used to see more patients um, at a faster rate in order to compensate with those types of losses on on this category of patients that we see. But we're not able to do that anymore so um, in order to survive, we have to be uh, very selective in the categories of patients, how many OHIP patients we're seeing in a day, that type of thing. Because at the end of the day, even though we're being expected to see OHIP-insured patients at a 50% loss, you know, our landlords expect their rent to be paid. Our staff expect to have their paycheck every two weeks our leases on our equipment or our loans on our equipment 
None of those are being rolled back. We have to pay our utilities. So we're not seeing on the on the payment side of running our practices to be able to see patients any relief to sort of offset the cost that we're expected to pay to see OHIP patients. How long does the average OHIP insured eye exam take? We're spending about um, half an hour with the, the doctor and our staff in our clinic to um, get everything done. And I would say they're spending another half hour before they reach their appointment time to make sure that we've got all of the information correct. We've done COVID screening, all of those types of things. And everything just has to be very structured within the office so we can control patient flow, make sure that everything has been sanitized behind patients as they move through our office. How much do you get paid for that exam? On average for OHIP patients, we're receiving $44 and our cost of delivery is between 80 to $90. And when I say cost of delivery, I'm just talking about fixed operating costs. That means that 80 or $90 number doesn't provide any type of income or resources for um, the optometrist providing the service. That's just our staff, our rent and overhead costs. So just before we go, what would you like to leave our audience with on this issue? I would really appreciate people going to our website called saveicare.ca and supporting primary eye care services in the province by letting the government know it's a very simple um, form that they can fill out and to continue to apply pressure and make the government aware that this is a serious issue that is easy to remedy. We want to be there to be able to take care and help people um, in the future, and we need the public health help to do that. Dr. Sheldon Saliba, president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Joel in Mississauga called with his firsthand account of trying to obtain the high-dose flu vaccine. I wanted to get the high-dose. I'm a senior and I'm at higher risk with lots of medications. Two years ago, after uh, um, waiting the end of October, and that's nothing with my doctor's office as to when it, the high dose is coming in, I just went and got the uh, regular vaccine. Last year, I didn't wait. I got the regular vaccine right away, and I, and I was in and out checking in my doctor's office, and end of November, they still had no idea when the high dose was coming in. So my my question is, is the high dose ever going to come in early enough to help uh, seniors and people who need it? Catherine in Hamilton called about worries over COVID-19. My daughter is uh, in first year, finally got a contract teacher, so she's pretty excited. She's in my bubble and she came out to visit me one time before the school reopens tomorrow and she woke up Sunday morning with a sore throat, runny nose and a cough. So she off she went to get tested and of course we're waiting now to hear about what's going to happen. But she spent two weeks setting up a classroom. She's not, she's wondering whether that was where she could have uh, contacted. She has the contact app. She checks it constantly. 
She it says that she hasn't been exposed to anything. But I'm, we're hoping it's just a cold, but, you know, you get nervous and think about it. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jerry in Sutton, who phoned with some observations and questions around a second wave of COVID-19. With the worry about second wave coming on, well, we've also got winter coming on, which means people won't be gathering at beaches, parks. Winter sports like skating, skiing will probably be curtailed, which means people will be spending more time at home. So the less people moving around, the less chance of contact with the, with the virus. And why hasn't the government issued some form of sample kit that can be sent out to every household so we can get tested, find out who's a carrier and who's not, and I'd be able to isolate the carriers which are spreading it. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.